Do you record, my lord? How can you record? You need give no moisture to me, old friend. I am not dead. But your microphone! They've muted my mic, but not my voice. Ah, still. I live in an apocalyptic podcast. My voice fits into it so precisely that I fear most of all I will grow bored reliving the thing so exactly. Usul, I don't... Don't try to understand it. Accept it. And leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and, and Spotify. <laughs> yeah, please do that last bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not joking. <laughs> it helps. It helps the show. The algorithm. Read the algorithm gods. Welcome to Gom Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And we are back with episode five of our Gom Jabbar Messiah book club. Uh-huh. <laughs> we are refreshed and recharged from the holidays. And I can't wait to jump back into this book, Leo. We are 50 pages at a time making our way through Dune Messiah. And today's reading took us from page 203 to 248. I just got to say, these are the fucking pages. Yep. That's was, it. You don't have to say them anymore. These are the, the fucking pages. <laughs> that's it. Full stop. It's the whole, there's a period and an exclamation point. Figure that one out. Both the most exciting and the most intimidating also, I forgot the whole Alia chapter. Like, I just forgot the whole... Anyway, <laughs> getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get some housekeeping out of the way before we jump into today's reading. That's right. So first and foremost, a thank you to our patrons. Yes. Their support makes this show possible, and we cannot thank them enough. And if you haven't joined the Patreon, consider doing so at patreon.com slash gomchapar. You get fun benefits like totally ad-free episodes, bonus clips, and silly bloopers that you normally get cut and no one hears, but patrons do. And of course, you get access to these book club episodes and other bonus episodes early before everyone else gets to hear them. Also, a special shout out to our Quisats Hatterack level members, Case Aiken, Nate Hyde. Y'all are shortening that path, and in this case, you're shortening our path to giving our entire lives to Gamjabar. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Seriously. Thank you so much. Also, we have some cool merch. Yeah. Gamjabarshop.com is the place where you can find some great posters, stickers, t-shirts with designs made by Leo himself and his dad who designed our cover art. So if you like our cover art, more Dune art and merch at Gamjabarshop.com, folks. Go check it out. Another great way to support this show. Literally took more work than you would believe. So <laughs> check it out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we are also always around, happy to get an email, happy to hear what you're thinking about the reading. So send us an email at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. 
Or, of course, if you're part of the Discord as a patron, just add us. Say hi. We're here. Right. <laughs> Finally, we keep these episodes 100% spoiler-free, covering only what we've read so far up to the page specified per episode. Absolutely. All right. That takes care of housekeeping. Indeed. Let's get into the mailbag section of today's episode. We have some great emails. Yes. And we're excited to answer them. The first one comes to us from Adam. Adam wrote, Good day, hombres. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) How do you think life would pan out for Paul if the attack by the Harkonnens failed and the Atreides managed to hang on to and make Arrakis their own and Leto survived? Would Paul still be emperor? How would he have triggered his Kwisatz Haderach power? And would he still have pineapple as a safe word? (laughs) Ending on perhaps the most important question of all. The most important question, right? Always have a safe word, folks. Always make a pineapple. Establish that early in a relationship. (laughs) Trust me. Yeah. (laughs) If I learned anything from Gamont, I learned that. (laughs) Now, we love a speculative question. It's kind of fun to do this mind experiment. So let's uh, let's dive into it. What do you think, Abu? What do you think about that question? Yeah, I loved this question and wanted to include it particularly in today's episode because later in the takeaways, later in the chapter summary, we're going to be talking a lot about Paul's life and destiny and his agency and his control over his life. So very relevant to today. Right. To answer Adam's question... I think if the Atreides had ended up defeating the Harkonnens and repelling that attack, it honestly might have set off a galactic war. Because you have to remember that the Emperor only conspired with the Harkonnens to take down Leto and the Atreides because he felt threatened, both politically and militarily. (laughs) And sexually. (laughs) And and yeah, most definitely sexually. (laughs) And a hundred million percent (laughs) beardily. It's the greatest now, adverb I've ever heard. <laughs> now, imagine if instead of dying, Duke Leto had both defeated and embarrassed the Harkonnens and the secret Sardaukar that the Emperor sent along with them. That potentially reveals the Emperor's hand in all of this. Duke Leto could go to the Landstrad and be like, look what the Emperor's up to. Look at these shenanigans. Ultimately, I think to Adam's point about would Paul reclaim the throne? I think eventually he would, even in this like alternate hypothetical timeline, because presumably Duke Leto used the Fremen, as was his plan, to survive and win. He would probably continue to use the Fremen to wage this war against the Emperor, and because of the Missionary Protectiva and all the Bene Gesserit tampering, the Fremen already are conditioned to see Paul as a messiah, as the Lisan al-Gaib. Right. So... When the Landstrad, led by House Atreides, would win this hypothetical war against the Emperor and overthrow him, I think the Fremen would push for Paul to take the throne. And I could easily see a situation in which he ascends to power. So I think we still end up with Emperor Paul Atreides. Perhaps not Paul Muad'Dib Atreides, but still Emperor Atreides. Right. Finally, to answer that last part of Adam's question, I think his relationship with both his powers as the Kwisatz Haderach and with the Bene Gesserit would be different, potentially. Maybe he would be less antagonistic towards the Bene Gesserit and, in fact, need their help in understanding and using this power. So there you go. That's my sort of long-winded hypothetical response to what could have happened in an alternate universe. 
What about you, Leah? What do you think would have happened if things had gone differently on Arrakis? You know, I agree with pretty much everything you've said. I think that the all-out war would be fairly orderly. I think from Shaddam's concerns about Leto Atreides, if Leto Atreides exposed Shaddam's involvement in the Harkonnen attack, I think the Lance Ride would pretty quickly unify around Leto. I, I think it would actually be fairly neat. I think it would there would probably be a few battles, but ultimately, armed with the Fremen, armed with the desert power, as we've heard so many times, I think Leto Atreides would take the throne. I don't think Paul would be emperor first. I think Leto Atreides would be emperor. And eventually, Paul would probably be emperor. And I think that it is inevitable that the moment Paul awakens as a Kwisatz Haderach, he looks on what the Bene Gesserit have done, and he's like, fuck y'all. <laughs> I do not like the way you're contriving to control the universe, and I'm my own dude. Get out of here. And then, of course, kind of most importantly, in all of this, pineapple is just the best safe word. So yeah, <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's always been part of the plan and will continue to be. Great questions. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. I think that's a universal constant, you know? Yeah. It's like E equals MC In, in the infinite timelines, <laughs> it's always pineapple. It's a, yeah. It's a nexus point. <laughs> <laughs> Great question, Adam. Thank you for writing in. Yeah. Next up, we have a question from Mike Newby about the Great Houses. This is what he writes in his email. Is it implied that the Great Houses of the Landstrad were created by ancient Bene Gesserit in their plans to create the Kwisatz Haderach. It seems likely that, given the scale of the Bene Gesserit plan, the genes of House Atreides and House Harkonnen were shaped by the Bene Gesserit in the first place. So it sort of led me to wonder if the very existence of the Great Houses was directly or indirectly created by past Bene Gesserit. What do you think? Great question. Oh my god. Yeah, such a great question from Mike. And honestly... Something that is not outside the realm of possibility. It's easy to imagine a world where many of the great houses or even many of the minor houses were formed as part of some Bene Gesserit program, whether it's the breeding program or one of their many other machinations. Right. To this point, though, sort of digging into the lore, I did find some discrepancies. So going back to the first book, we learn that the breeding program has been a 90-generation-long plan. Right. And after doing a quick bit of Googling, I kind of came to the conclusion that three generations is roughly 100 years. And if we do some quick napkin math, 90 generations, we're talking roughly 3,000-ish years, give or take a couple thousand, considering this is science fiction, we're far into the future, we don't know where medical technology is at, Spice is a huge factor, spice and the life-extending properties of it. So 3,000 is a rough estimate, but it's a starting point for us. From the encyclopedia, we then know that House Atreides was found in the year 86 before Gilt. And on the Dune timeline, that is over 10,000 years before the first pages of Dune. Right. So just taking those two numbers into account, the roughly... 3,000-ish years ago that the breeding program started and the 10,000 years ago that House Atreides started, it doesn't quite line up with Mike's theory that perhaps House Atreides and House Harkonnen were formed as part of the breeding program. 
Right. But I still think Mike's theory holds water, and I can easily see the Bene Gesserit being part of the rise and fall of many houses in history. Yeah. You know, I in, in doing my own napkin math, there's definitely the spice melange, like, dramatically extends the wealthy's lives. But even if it's doubled, right, like, even if people are living to be 200, that's still only 6,000 years accounted for. So... I agree. Like, I think the breeding program is too young to be part of the creation of some of these old great houses. That being said, we have to remember that the Bene Gesserit have been around since literally Earth. (laughs) So it's been, you know, 30,000 years of various planning. And even from the earliest days of them getting off the planet, they were planning 50 generation, 100 generation things to increase, say, for instance, pranabendu control, and to increase these qualities that they found to be beneficial for their order. So I think it's possible they had a hand in forming some of the great houses and houses minor at the creation of the empire, because they were definitely around, and they were definitely a big part of that establishment of what are the three sort of legs to this tripod universe. Yeah. But I think that there are enough examples of houses being formed for other reasons that it's safe to say some are almost certainly organic and maybe some were tampered. But either way, the the breeding program in particular is much younger than the Lancerat. Yeah. So with all of that out of the way, we are going to take a tiny break. But when we're back, we're going to jump into this episode's reading. The next 50 pages of Dune Messiah. Don't go anywhere. These pages are worth waiting for. Oh my God, they're so good. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, folks. Let's jump into the summary of today's reading. It's a lot today, y'all. Buckle the fuck up. (laughs) No kidding. We start with chapter 16. This chapter begins with a meeting between Sightail and Paul. Sightail, of course, is in full-on face dancer disguised as Lykna, Othame's daughter, who we know is dead. And in fact, Paul also knows is dead. He <laughs> fully recognizes and sees through Sightail's disguise here. Yeah. We learn in these opening pages, however, that Sightail has fooled almost everyone else. He got past Chani. He got past Banerjee, one of Paul's officers. So let's not discredit Sightail's achievement here. Yeah. People that knew Lykna, people that knew Othame are looking at his disguise and not seeing right through it. And the only reason Paul can sort of pierce this veil is because of his Benny Gesserit observational abilities and because of his visions. Sidetail, meanwhile, is um, sweating bullets figuratively. <laughs> right. There's this hilarious quote that tells us how much pressure he's truly under. Quote, it was the most exacting part Sidetail had ever attempted. End quote. The role of a lifetime. <laughs> 
Indeed. Indeed. He's hoping to nab the Oscar with this. <laughs> He's going for that EGOT, <laughs> which sounds like a Benny Toilax monster. <laughs> true, true. So he's clearly feeling a lot of pressure here, as one would when talking to a messiah, when talking to the most powerful being in the galaxy. Of course, Paul is fully aware that Sightail is a face dancer. He is seeing through the disguise. And while Sightail has been protected to some extent by Edric's involvement in the conspiracy, Paul hasn't exactly seen Sightail. He can make some educated guesses by looking at sort of the edges of the frame. Right. He may not see the whole picture, but he does see the edges of it. And thus, he sees right through Sightail's disguise here. What he doesn't want to do is tamper with this future. And this is a big theme in today's reading. Paul is now sort of locking himself into a future here. And thus, he agrees to both meet with Sightail and hear what message he has to give. Right. Quote, he knew only what he could not do. He could not slay this face dancer. That would precipitate the future which must be avoided at all costs, end quote. So there it is in plain text for us. Paul is too nervous to tamper with the future at the moment, so he's not going to just outright kill this guy that he knows is part of a conspiracy to take him down. Or even, I get the impression, like, out him as a face dancer. Like, yeah. Paul is playing the part of the fooled person because he doesn't know. This is a face dancer assassin who he barely sees in any of his visions, maybe saying, yo, you a fucking face dancer, bro? <laughs> maybe that would cause, you know, Sightail to attack or, or kill someone in the room. You know, do something that Paul would then have yep. to step in and kill him. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty. And it's kind of that butterfly effect idea, right? right the tiniest right. thing, the flap of a butterfly's wing could change the future. And now that Paul is committing himself to path A, he's got to commit. He's got to play the part. He's got to play the role. The tiniest of details have to be exact if he wants that future to come true. So he plays his role here. He agrees to meet. He will hear out what Sightail slash Lykna has to say. Basically, what Sightail is here to do is tell the emperor that Othame wants Paul to bring Chani with him to this meeting where Othame will share this information about a Fremen conspiracy against Paul. So he agrees to this meeting with one caveat. He's not going to bring Chani with him. He'll go and meet Paul, but Chani stays. Saitail's not super in love with this idea. <laughs> Clearly, Chani plays some part within their conspiracy. It's important that she come with him. But Paul is insistent. And you don't really push back against the emperor of the known universe. So Saitail also backs down here. Okay, but quick side note here. <laughs> if you did today's reading, you know where this chapter goes. Or you know where this reading goes. And you know uh -huh. the fate of everybody in that fucking room. So why is Paul suggesting Hara? <laughs> Yo, Paul. he does suggest Hara at one point. Paul, what are you doing? <laughs> right. She's oh my wonderful. God. You are that bringing is some her mad disrespect to hurrah. <laughs> That's so fucked up. Bring Corba. <laughs> I don't know. Bring someone shitty. What are you doing? <laughs> right. Dude, you know what's going to happen. You... Why are you suggesting hurrah? Oh my God. Frankly, the mother of your two adopted children, where the fuck are they, dude? What happened oh, yeah. to your two adopted kids? Where's hurrah? <laughs> yeah. 
big L for those kids. It's like adopted by the most famous student in the universe. No one talks about them. <laughs> yeah. What a great point, Leo. It, it is so alarming that he would suggest someone we love so much to take with him. But luckily, they ultimately agreed that Lechna's mom will suffice. <laughs> right. Chapter 16 then ends on a bleak few sentences that... um Again, we're just going to sort of read to you in their entirety as we continue to slowly trudge forward to our ultimate transformation into just audiobooks. <laughs> Quote, Paul turned toward the blank screen behind him. Whoops. Paul turned. We would be terrible audiobooks. We can never fucking <laughs> read these oops. quotes, right? <laughs> just constantly stumbling. Let me take that again. I'm not going to cut any of that. Quote. Paul turned toward the blank screen behind his desk. He felt that he waited for the arrival of a rock on its blind journey from some height. Should he tell Banerjee about the messenger's true nature, he wondered. No, such an incident hadn't been written on the screen of his vision. Any deviation here carried precipitate violence. A moment of fulcrum had to be found, a place where he could will himself out of the vision if such a moment existed, end quote. Uh, <laughs> oh just my God. Waiting goosebumps. for a rock. That's so bleak. <laughs> yeah. Chapter 17. Uh, and as a quick note about this chapter, a lot of it is in Paul's head and his thoughts are really kind of floating around this theme of like, agency and how much can he control and how much is he locked in, which we're going to be talking about in the takeaways. And also, <laughs> we spend a big chunk of this chapter with Alia's evening right, which is another one of those moments that is just every sentence deserves appreciation and like a, deserves an analysis. So we're going to be keeping this, uh, this summary brief, not that brief, <laughs> but just so you know, takeaways, we're going to be talking about some of this specifically. So to start off in what really sounded to me like an Assassin's Creed side mission. Yeah. <laughs> Paul is like heavily disguised, sneaking through Arakeen on his way to meet with Othame. He's caught in this throng of people attending the evening rite. And to the outside observer, Paul is just one of the kind of deep desert Fremen. Again, his disguise is great. He's moving intentionally a little bit differently to keep people from recognizing him from the, like, CH days, you know? Now, this leads us into the ritual proper. He finds his guide among the people, Rasir, and then, which I'm sure Paul is not excited about this, Rasir is like, oh, no, no, we're going to stay for the whole ceremony. Like, this is going to be great. <laughs> I'm not going to miss this show. Paul's like, God damn it. <laughs> Mom, I don't want to go to church. We're staying for the whole service. Oh, man. <laughs> I just want the part where I drink wine. I don't want the rest of it. <laughs> Long story short, Paul is not a fan of this experience. Quote, Paul felt sickened. What are we doing? He asked himself. <laughs> That's how I read it. <laughs> End quote. What are we doing? Like what are... a Seinfeld-esque, like, what are we doing? <laughs> What are we doing? <laughs> That's it. That's it right there. Exactly. <laughs> What's the deal with evening rituals? <laughs> <laughs> now, Alia 
then opens up the Q&A portion of her ritual. And basically, hecklers ask her questions. They're like, tell me my future. Should I murder someone tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. And she's like, fuck y'all. Like, she's not in a good mood. She is tense. Clearly, she's not vibing with something that she saw in her visions. Now, after the ceremony's end, Paul is guided away by Rasir. And we get this kind of brief passage from Paul explaining his explanation for why Alia is suddenly in a bad mood. Paul says, or kind of thinks, quote, I should know what Alia saw. I've seen it enough times myself. And she didn't cry out against it. She saw the alternatives, too. End quote. What a wild chapter. And I'm on the same boat. I also forgot this ever happened. Yeah. yeah. I, uh-huh. I think it's just overshadowed by what comes immediately after. But yeah. <laughs> this is such a powerful chapter. I can't wait to break it apart more fully in the takeaway later. For now, though, let's move on to chapter 18. Yes. This chapter continues immediately after the previous one, which is so rare in Dune. Most chapters jump around. There's usually time differences and time skips between chapters. Nope. We are just continuing exactly where we just left off on the previous page. Paul is being guided towards Othame's house. And once the house is in view, Paul hesitates a bit. Right. And thinks to himself that uh, here he is once again, walking down in a path that he has walked down in his visions countless times before. It's a bit of a surreal moment for him to finally for real be doing the thing he's probably thought about over and over and over and over again for the last decade plus, right? Yeah. When Paul finally does approach Othame's door, he knocks and is greeted by a dwarf named Bejas, who shockingly has never appeared in Paul's visions. (laughs) Right. And we do want to quickly, just sort of an aside here, we do want to acknowledge that the term dwarf is being used in the book here, and we may use that in reference to Bejas, just to be consistent with what the book says. But also, that is not the politically correct way to address little people. And we just want to acknowledge that we don't mean that in an inappropriate or offensive way. It's just a book written in the 1960s, and that's what people said back then. Right. So continuing with the chapter, Paul here is momentarily hopeful. (laughs) Yeah. Wait a second. (laughs) This yeah. is something that wasn't in my visions. Whoa. Maybe this is that fulcrum point that I can use to bend the vision and create a different future. <laughs> are, are you a fulcrum? Are you a fulcrum, right. Bejas? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, no, look at me. How could I be a fulcrum? I'm a person. <laughs> I'm a, I mean, yeah, I'm a, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this momentary hopefulness is dashed, however, when... Paul is then led into the room where Othame is waiting, and the play continues as usual. Reality sort of snaps back to match again with his vision, and Paul realizes that B-Jazz was perhaps just a small outlier. Othame here is not looking great. He's old, he's scarred, he has a terminal illness that he got during his years fighting for Paul in his jihad, his years as a Fadegan, a death commando. And the general mood in the room is also not great. Right. It's not exactly antagonistic, but this isn't an old 
heartfelt, happy greeting between old friends who used to know each other in the siege days. Right. Othame's other daughter, Duri, is also in the room, and she is, in fact, actually quite a bit more hostile towards Paul. She is sort of pushing back and calling him out on things. Othame is a bit more resigned. And there is some genuinely heartbreaking stuff in this part of the chapter. Paul is sort of confronted with the results of his jihad for the people that he loved and trusted, and there's a bit of guilt here for him. Quote, frustrated rage threatened to overwhelm Paul then. That Othame should be spent thus. A Fadakin deserved better. End quote. Uh, yeah. In the moment here, they get down to business. Lykna sent Paul here to receive a message from Othame to learn who the Fremen conspirators are. And it turns out that message is our boy B-Jazz in the other room. Hey. Turns out <laughs> B-Jazz is actually a human D-strands that was originally used and created by the Tleilaxu. And he contains in his mind, encoded in that D-strands, the names of every single Fremen traitor. Dury, Othame's daughter in the room here, explains why Othame didn't just walk into the palace and tell Paul or right, text him right. or call him. <laughs> yeah. Othame has intentionally stayed distant from Paul to curry favor with these conspirators. And in fact, he has literally moved next door to them. Yeah. And so that's why Othame is jumping through all of these hoops to get this message to Paul. He doesn't want to out himself to these conspirators. That's a death sentence for him. Not to mention, dude is like sick and injured and old and tired. Meanwhile, he's out here on like what sounds like a multi-year sting operation, infiltrating conspirators as a final gesture for Muad'Dib. It's like, Oof. God, it's just no wonder Dury is so hostile, right? Right. Watching her father go through all of this for some fucking guy. Like, yeah, he's the emperor of the universe, but is that worth your father doing all of that? No, of course not. Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm really glad you brought that up, Leah. That's such a good point. And that's subtext that's easy to miss on because there's so much happening in these chapters. It's important to see this from Dury's perspective as well. She has watched her father sacrifice time and time and time again wither away and ultimately die for this dude that she probably doesn't even know. Right. I mean, this whole book, as is very clear now from the way it started, from Bronsovix, from our time spent with the conspirators, from all of it, this book is kind of the counter argument to Paul is a great dude. And yep. this is just another example of that, but it's one that's held in perfect tension. Like, no one is really in this moment a caricature. Everyone's kind of playing their part in this grand destined game, you know, reading their scripts as Paul sees it. And it's brilliant. And honestly, like, I understand when people don't vibe with Dune Messiah because it is so much not the book we've read before of yeah. here's our hero and here's part two of the hero's journey. <laughs> but also, good Lord, it's a masterpiece of just really genuinely looking at what is the cost of war what is the cost of being a messiah and what is the downside to prescience if you see the future 
Yeah, it explores the darker side of the first book. This is the uh, darker second act. Right. This is also the point where we learn and Paul realizes that B-Jazz is himself lightly prescient, has some sort of minor prescient abilities, which explains why B-Jazz didn't show up in Paul's visions. B-Jazz is the information that Paul was seeing in his visions. He just wasn't seeing the person who contained that information, if that makes sense. Again, he doesn't see the full picture. He's just seeing the edges of it, just the frame. Right. B-Jazz is then brought back into the room and <laughs> things get a little sort of weird and philosophical and quirky at this moment. I love it. <laughs> B-Jazz starts speaking in these half riddles and Zen Sunni philosophy and he's just sort of all over the place. Otham and Dury are both like, yeah, 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 he does this. Don't mind him, which I <laughs> found so hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, a Tleilaxu toy, learned and alert, Paul thought. The Benny Tleilax never threw away something this valuable. End quote. Paul is immediately suspicious of B-Jazz. Why is he talking in riddles? Why is he spouting this Zen Sunni philosophy? He's a Tleilaxu creation. So, of course, there's this immediate suspicion planted in Paul's mind. Is this part of some other plot? Is this a conspiracy within a conspiracy? What's going on here? I do like to think that Paul, having spent all this time now with hate, has gotten better at like the Zen Sunni wordplay. Yeah. <laughs> and thus he's like totally not phased. Bijaz yeah. is like, you are my finger. And Paul's like, yeah, that makes sense. And Otham's like, what is he talking about? <laughs> you know, it's interesting to think about. Because again, in this scene, Paul is just like, you're saying interesting things. What do you mean by that? And he's kind of probing yeah. and asking questions. I love it. It's so cool. Yeah. And part of that probing is actually strategic because right. Paul is also stalling. We find out that he's waiting for something to happen. He's waiting for the next part of the script to play out before he moves on with the vision. And since B-Jazz is like this unknown factor in the script, he's sort of stalling until the train gets back on track, until we're back onto vision A, path A, that we're committed to now. Right. Otham eventually says the thing Paul is waiting for. Quote, do what you must, Usul. And Paul thinks to himself, quote, the words of the vision had been spoken. And there it is. The train is back on track the vision can continue. Yeah, man. This carries us to the chapter. Chapter 19, Bijaz and Paul leave Otham's house, and Bijaz is terrified. He's basically seeing, in his prescient way, what's going to happen, and he's not feeling good about it. Stilgar rushes out of the shadows, and Paul's like, Hey, Stilgar, take this guy away to safety. He's got all of the names of the traitors. He's super valuable. Get him to safety. Mm -hmm. It's also at this time that I get the impression it's like the Secret Service suddenly jumping into action, right? Like yeah. men are pouring from the shadows. Ornithopters fly down. Suddenly, this like empty cul-de-sac is full of people. Yeah, is buzzing with activity. It's a pretty cool visual. It really is. Paul's squad is everywhere, and as they're kind of rushing to help, protecting, you know, securing the emperor, making sure if there are conspirators that they're captured for questioning and all this, Paul thinks to himself, quote, more sacrifices, end quote. 
Jesus. Which is oh a bad look God. and really speaks to Paul's state throughout this chapter where he's just going, look at all the people who are either going to be dead momentarily or at the very least 100% blinded for life, yeah. which in the Fremen culture is a death sentence. A hissing begins, which climbs to a roar. Quote, Paul, knowing that sound and glow from the earliest nightmare glimpses of his vision, felt an odd sense of fulfillment. It went the way it must. Stone burner, someone screamed. End quote. God. Earliest glimpses. Paul has been seeing this horrible thing for fucking years. Like, that's nuts. Yeah. He's been hearing that hiss for years. And how, how sort of dark and twisted is it that when he finally gets to hear it for real, there's a sense of fulfillment? Yeah. Almost relief? Like, finally. I don't have to struggle against this awful possibility anymore because here we go. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Heartbreaking. Yeah. So Othame's house explodes into this kind of pillar of flame, a blinding light filling the sky of Arakeen, and everyone kind of throws themselves on the ground and waits. Paul knows what's going to happen. He's seen it. But for all of these men, they're like, okay, I'm going to be blind in a moment. And also, the whole planet and everyone I've ever known is going to be dead soon, potentially. It's just like an unbelievable feeling that they must be having in this moment. Paul is calm, like weirdly calm. Again, maybe that sense of fulfillment is present throughout this scene. He's been through this vision a million times. His words and actions are locked in. Literally, like look at the verbiage in this sentence, quote, because it was required of him, Paul threw a protective arm across his face, dove for the low lip of a curb, end quote. <laughs> He's like, well, yeah, in the script, I have to put my hand up, so I'm going to put my hand up, even though he also acknowledges that it's too late for everybody on the block. Mm -hmm. He's seen all of this before, so we get this passage, and this is just insane to me. This is fucking bonkers. Yeah. Quote. He summoned up his oracular vision of these moments, then turned and strode along the track that time had carved for him, fitting himself into the vision so tightly that it could not escape. He felt himself grow aware of this place as a multitudinous possession, reality welded to prediction. End quote. Paul has, for decades now, been exploring ways for escaping the prescient trap, right? I'm not going to be Muad'Dib. I'll be Paul Muad'Dib. I've never seen that in a vision. Let's do that and see if things change. Paul can't do that anymore. So I do imagine this whole scene, as much as it's super insanely impressive, is also him just going on autopilot and just doing the thing that is the easiest thing to do, which is what he's seen himself do a million times. Yeah. So he proceeds to kind of get a hold of the situation. He's also like very casually calling out to people by name, kind of walking along the street, demonstrating even to his blind men that he can still see. Mm -hmm. Stilgar arrives and Paul kind of waves him over. This is also when we first kind of find out that indeed Paul's eyes have melted <laughs> or something fucking gruesome. He has no eyes. 
Now, Stilgar is, in this scene, blown away by Paul's abilities. This is wild. Paul is making his way through camp. He's like commenting on people's clothes. He's like, you know, hey, that's a nice haircut. And he goes to this command ornithopter. And again, basically just blows everyone's mind. He grabs the like radio out of someone's hand and then just issues a bunch of commands, getting control over the situation. And finally, Paul orders a call to Shani. Tell her he's okay, that he'll be there soon. Anything else, Paul? <laughs> no, Anything no, that's it. Anything else? Yeah, the, the person's like, <laughs> do you want us to mention the... Paul's like, mention what? And they're like, you, you know, uh, 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 the, thing, the thing with the, 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 how do I say this? I don't know. What do you, what do you, uh, what do you think I should mention? <laughs> they're like, no, we're good. Okay. You'll be there soon. We got it. <laughs> Solid. Send the fucking message. Stop questioning the emperor. <laughs> yeah. God, iconic. Even the emperor of the known galaxy and the Kwisatz Haderach is a bad boyfriend and is bad at texting. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it really grounds him, you know? It's easy to relate. <laughs> very relatable. <laughs> I also forget to include very important details in most of my texts. <laughs> yeah. <It's, laughs> what an amazing point. <laughs> God, this is going to come up in couples therapy. She's like, you didn't yeah. mention the eyes. He's like, I didn't think it was important. <laughs> I, I didn't even think of it. Didn't even occur to me. You know? I just wanted you to know I was safe. Listen. What else I, was there to say? The therapist is like, I do not get paid enough for this, <laughs> for this session. Our chapter and this episode's reading ends on kind of a redundant note, considering we just read this fucking chapter. Quote, now the forces gather, Paul thought. And he noted how strong was the smell of fear and the perspiration all around. End quote. Good Lord. Okay. That's it. That's the reading for this week. That's the reading, folks. That's it. The single most pivotal moment of this book for sure, but perhaps one of the like top tier, S tier moments of the entire Dune saga. It's incredible. All right. With the summary out of the way, we're going to take another short break, but don't go anywhere, folks. There is still so much more left to talk about. When we come back, we're going to dive deep into our takeaways from today's reading and then chomp down on some yummy, yummy morsels. Mm. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. I hope your break was brief and enjoyable. Let's get into the takeaways. This first one being Paul's agency. We've talked before about the sort of pitfalls of prescience, right? How much does the Oracle shape the future? And we've questioned the extent of Paul's agency on this podcast before, but it's really kind of, we're beaten over the heads with it in these chapters. Yeah. So let's go a little deeper on this idea of how much control does Paul truly have during all of this? Because we get a lot more detail about how prescience works in these chapters. Right. In today's opening chapter, that conversation with Sightail, we get the first inklings of the fact that Paul has now committed to this track and we start to learn that he is going through the motions. He wants to commit to this future and thus must follow exactly what the vision tells him to. When Sidetail confirms to him that the Fremen have betrayed him, he's like, 
exactly as I saw in my visions. Quote, this moment fitted the shape of things to come for sure, and he had no alternative but to commit himself to this course. End quote. Yeah. And that sentiment, of course, we have talked about all throughout the summary already, but that is such a key idea all through today's chapters, that he has committed himself to this course and that there is no alternative. Or if there are alternatives, they are worse. They are bad. <laughs> and what he is doing is deciding basically on the path of lesser evil. And the truly heartbreaking part of all of this is that Paul is trapped here in these chapters. It almost feels like he's given up. But of course, Paul is human and he can't help but hope that maybe there's that fulcrum point. Maybe an opportunity will present himself when the reality is, and I think a part of him deep down knows this too, it won't. There will be no fulcrum that presents itself. It's truly, truly heartbreaking stuff. And watching Paul grapple with it is gut-wrenching. Now, to your point just a few moments ago regarding how long he's been having these visions. Yeah. We get a sense, you know, really, at least since he was 15. We get this quote in the chapter as he's kind of entering Alia's temple for this nightly ritual. Quote, He had come a long way from his boyhood days in Caledon Castle. Where had he put his foot on the path that led to this journey across a crowded square on a planet so far from Caledon? Had he really put his foot on a path? He could not say he had acted at any point in his life for one specific reason. The motives and impinging forces had been complex, more complex, possibly, than any other set of goads in human history. He had the heady feeling here that he might still avoid the fate he could see so clearly along this path. But the crowd pushed him forward, and he experienced the dizzy sense that he had lost his way, lost personal direction over his life. End quote. Wow. He is starting to question the same thing we're discussing. How long has this been going on? Right. What choices have I made? Were they even choices? Were they even my choices to make? That brought me here, to Arrakis, to being a god, to being a messiah, to being an emperor. He's basically having this like midlife existential crisis <laughs> where he's asking himself, how the fuck did I get here? Right. I see a lot of takes on messiah like a lot of and just takes on paul as a character and people talk about like oh he's a sociopath and 61 billion people but in so many ways like this book exists as a sort of counter argument to paul is the hero of dune it's sentences like this that also really in a lot of ways remind me and remind us maybe that paul isn't exactly the devil or the like evil dictator that the Bene Gesserit or Bronzo, well, Bronzo is pretty level in his assessment, but yeah. don't you throw cool. shade at Bronzo. How dare you? <laughs> I listen, I'm still team Bronzo. All right. Team Bronzo, Bronzo <laughs> okay, till I die. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but at least the critics of, you know, I'm sure Dury here would be like, fuck Paul. Yep. That's also not really fair. And it's sentences like this that remind us Paul himself is like, I don't really remember choosing any of this. And yet here we are. It's powerful stuff. So at this point about Paul's agency, 
or lack thereof, has not been made clear yet, it's reinforced one more time in this conversation with Othame, this chapter with Othame. Right. The question of free will comes up in this chapter. We're finally sort of acknowledging the thing we've been tiptoeing around. What does this mean for free will, for Paul's free will, for everyone's free will in this galaxy? And it's dark. Quote, from the moment the jihad had chosen him, he'd felt himself hemmed in by the forces of a multitude. Their fixed purposes demanded and controlled his course. Any delusions of free will he harbored now must be merely the prisoner rattling his cage. His curse lay in the fact that he saw the cage. He saw it. End quote. Uh, so oh good. my God. This very much reminds me of like the Plato's cave allegory. Right. This idea of free will and choice. This is Paul's curse right here. The fact that he can see the fact that he has no choice, that there are forces outside of his control directing the course of his life. Dune kind of asks this open-ended question of like, is there predestiny and are characters on these rails? And is Paul's curse that he can simply see the rails that he was always on? Or, and I personally like this better because it leaves agency as an intact idea uh, and leaves free will as a possibility. And I'm an optimist at the end of the day. Right. Or was it simply Paul's misfortune of being a prescient young man and having no warning label on that prescience saying like, warning, like excessive examination of the future will lock you in a fucking cage, you idiot child. Like, it's totally possible that all of us have that free will but it's the gazing on the future that built the cage around him and now he sees it and how awful is that to be cognizant of it that's such a great point and i'm super glad that you were destined to say that on this podcast oh shit <laughs> oh, damn it excellent point regardless of whether you chose to say it or not and i couldn't agree more i actually kind of take issue with paul's thoughts here him saying I have no free will, these delusions of free will. I don't know, man. You're the one holding all the cards, right? Like he can see the future. He's the one choosing path A where Othame gets stone burnered. So did Othame have a choice in tonight? Right. No. I feel like Paul is the one that chose the path where Othame gets fried to a crisp. Yeah. I hear you. I mean, it's a little bit semantics. Like maybe Paul's just being melodramatic in his thinking. He's <laughs> yeah, like, oh, ah, yeah. I have no free will. Well, you do. We don't know what his other visions are, but from his melodramatic thinking and from the fact that like, this is pretty fucking awful, but this is still like the best case scenario <laughs> means that he might be saying, I have no choices, even though he has 10 alternative paths. But if all of those paths lead to everyone on Arrakis dying, uh, yeah, it's not really. It's kind of a false, false choice. Yeah, it's very difficult to wrap your mind around. And it's easy to be critical of Paul and also sympathetic with him. And I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. Both are true. Right. Now we get one more. If the horse wasn't dead, maybe this does it. Uh, we get <laughs> one more little quote. And this is during the stone burner chapter. Paul talking to Stilgar after his blindness. Quote. Ah, uh, still. I live in an apocalyptic dream. My steps fit into it so precisely that I fear, most of all, 
I will grow bored reliving the thing so exactly. End quote. Oh my God. Boredom. That's one aspect of all of this that we have actually not brought up at all yet. Yeah. He's on rails. Like you said earlier, he's on autopilot. He's on that Disney ride that he's been on a million times. Yes. <laughs> How mind-numbingly boring would that get? That is another aspect of this that is just so, so brilliant. Like if Dune Messiah is a critical analysis of Paul as a ruler, as a god, and as a prescient being, this one facet of his life, this boredom, <laughs> is so tragic. Yeah. Like I think so much of being human is this sort of excitement about your day, right? You don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what the future can hold. It leads to hope, right? Hope is such a central emotion for people to feel. Hope is the thing that creates some of the most beautiful outcomes in human history. And it's that is stripped away. Right. It really gives me, I've mentioned this before on a podcast episode, I forget when, but it gives me these major Dr. Manhattan vibes from Watchmen. Right. Where if you become an omniscient being or close to omniscient like Paul is, how does any of this matter to you anymore? Right. You, you start disassociating with humanity, with yourself, with other people, with your emotions. Everything starts to lose context and meaning. First of all, beautifully said about hope, about that, the, the real like, really the torture of all of this and his point that he makes to still, I think we've all been in the situation of a work week or school or whatever, being just the repetition of movements of, I get up at this time, I go do the thing. It's never different. God, mundaneity is torturous, mm. but there's always that hope of, well, there's summer break coming up as a student, or there's new classes next semester, or I'm going to graduate or as a worker, I've got those paid time off days and where am I going to go this time? And what am I going to do for my weekend this time? We have those lights at the end of each little torturous tunnel. Paul doesn't have that anymore. It's that feeling of I've done all this before and can never not do it forever and ever. And the alternative to that would mean the apocalypse. <laughs> so you can't, you can't do it. Yeah. It is impossible to imagine the torture of that level of mundaneity. And it is just heartbreaking, soul-crushing, fascinating, and existential, you know, midlife crisis causing. <laughs> yeah. All in like two chapters. It's great. Oof. Dude wild. <laughs> so that right there is our first takeaway, folks. If you need a breather, hit pause, work through some existential <laughs> stuff you We're might not be going taking through one. at the moment. <laughs> We're not taking a breather. We're going to fucking keep going. Let's Woo! go. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about takeaway number two, because we have yet to acknowledge and deep dive into this Alia chapter, this chapter where Paul visits her temple and sits in during this rite. It's Yo, wild. let's go. Let's go. Nothing gets the blood boiling like a good old religious ceremony. <laughs> That's what Woo! I always say. <laughs> this is a dense chapter. <laughs> this is a dense chapter in a pretty dense book. So let's talk about Alia's evening ritual. 
Yes. So when Paul approaches the temple, he makes an observation about Alia's fane. Quote, the temple across the thronged square was new, its rituals of recent devising. But there was something about this setting in a desert sink at the edge of Arakeen. Everything conspired to produce the impression that this was a very old place full of traditions and mystery. End quote. Ugh. And I love that so much. This once again speaks to this idea that Paul and Alia, as gods, have to do this posturing, have to always have this air of bravura, not just around themselves, but around everything that represents them. Right. The keep, the temples, the rituals. Everything has to speak to their godhead. Right. Yeah. And this is, of course, also a commentary on just humanity and how we treat religions and beliefs and traditions. Any belief system is more powerful when it is old. Right. When it has these sort of long-held traditions and rituals. And humans often trick themselves into believing that the older something is, the better it is. That old equals better. The good old days. Old timers. <laughs> right. Gary Oldman. Oh, he's the best. <laughs> the best of all of them. I couldn't think of another old word, so I had to take that unnecessary shot at Gary. I'm sorry, Gary. Sorry, Gary. Love you. Love you, bud. <laughs> <laughs> now, in this scene, you know, the crowd enters the temple and the chanting begins. Love a good chant. <laughs> the content of the chants are basically hyping up Alia. They're like, oh, she's so powerful. Oh, she's so wise, right? She guards our dreaming souls. Wow. Ooh. Nice. Yeah, got him. Meanwhile, Paul is like, quote, look out. She can be filled with angry passion, too, end quote. <laughs> That's some iconic older brother shit. <laughs> He's like, ah, she's not. She doesn't do her dishes, though. Like, you'd be <laughs> blown away at how messy she is. Also, I picture him remembering how fierce she is with the knife. Eleven lights on that yeah. training dummy. Mm-hmm wild now speaking of lights he's looking around the room and the lights are set to flicker simulating candlelight adding to this sexy mood lighting and mystique in this religious environment and he hates it he hates it so much he's also like a little bit envious of the people and and he's kind of swept up in it too quote paul studied the pilgrims around him suddenly envious of their intentness, their air of listening to truths he could not hear. It seemed to him that they gained something here which was denied to him, something mysteriously healing, end quote. Wow. I love that. Again, this humanization of Paul. This is not actually the first time he's had this thought. Earlier in the council meeting when he was looking out over the pilgrims in the square, he also had a similar thought about what brings them here? I wish I could right. understand it. Like, what do they see in all of this? He's obviously disillusioned by it all, but these are true believers around him. I mean, word for word, how I feel about like the Kardashian show. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. I think it's terrible, but I see how it heals people mysteriously. You know, just boredom, cured. I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm envious, you know? Right. What Kool-Aid are they drinking? I kind of want a sip. I'm a little parched. Right? 
<laughs> yeah, very similar to that Kim Kardashian feeling you're feeling. <laughs> I would say probably one-to-one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I understand Paul at a molecular level. <laughs> We also learn in this scene that this is actually the first time that Paul has been to one of these rites as an observer in the crowd. Right. And despite the discomfort that he's feeling as someone who very much knows how the sausage gets made, <laughs> right. he can't help but get swept up in the moment as this chanting comes up, as Alia walks out on stage, as she grabs this chalice that contains melange and she drinks from it, he can't help but get hyped up himself. Quote, To his astonishment, Paul found he was holding his breath like the meanest pilgrim of this mob. Despite every shred of personal knowledge about the experience Alia was undergoing, he had been caught in the Tao web. End quote. Ah, uh, I love it. Wow. So good. It's so good. And the thing that this sequence made me immediately think back to was the siege orgy from the first book. Oh, yeah. yeah this great communal point. experience where emotions are rippling through the crowd and people are connected in a deeper psychological, emotional level. Right. I think very much intentionally resembles the ritual that's taking place here. I loved this parallel to the siege orgy. I just could not stop thinking about how similar those two scenes were. Orgies and going to church is similar is what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, noted. Cool. <laughs> Man, maybe I should go to church. <laughs> now, Alia says some dark shit after her visions, and people are now, like, disappointed. They have a feeling of dread. They have a feeling of, like, this is not right, and I'm not sure what is not right, but it's just not right. And as pilgrims are heckling, asking these questions, and she's kind of, like, snapping back at them, it really just heightens that feeling of something's amiss. Right. Notably, one of these hecklers is like, should I fucking kill a guy? <laughs> and really puts me in a place of like, I hope someone quietly wrote that dude's name down. Right. I hope security body... was like, uh, did you ID that guy? You ID'd him, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's David again. Man, he's, we got to keep an eye on him. Seriously. Yeah. The balls on that man. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Imagine yelling that out in a crowd at church. <laughs> Father, should I? I like to think the guy he was hired to kill is also in the crowd. <laughs> should I kill John? John's like, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> she definitely shook her head. No. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So funny. And we we joke about these questions that are being thrown out, but- Actually, there is sort of a poignant through line of the things that these these hecklers, these pilgrims in the crowd are desperate for Alia to answer for them. Yeah. Recall what the questions are. One of them is about a soldier who has died in one of the campaigns of Paul's Jihad, a mother asking about her son. Another is a greedy businessman asking if he should lock in a deal. Will it make him rich? A third is... <laughs> our boy David trying to kill John. And the last question is someone just, the ball's on this guy too, outright asking how long Paul's rule will last. Yeah. And when you think about it, the through line here 
is that the cracks are beginning to show in Paul's rule. Yeah. There is doubt in this crowd. There is dissent, greed, anger, resentment. The crowd is beginning to question things. I mean, bear in mind, Paul is a Fremen and very much the Fremen mentality is, is that of the tribe first and not about like individualistic greed or like mur yeah. murderous intent. David, come on, dude. <laughs> that kind of shit is just so indicative of individuals and, and the kind of waning and eroding of maybe Fremen values that is really what this book is demonstrating, that like the finite nature of government. Paul is no longer this indefinite statement for the whole universe. Yeah. There's an end to it. And there's a person in his sister's audience going, yo, when is that? <laughs> when is that end? It's like right. 10 years ago, there was no end. Yeah. This was my favorite moment of this chapter in particular, these hecklers calling out these questions and what it all represents for the larger themes of this story. It's so good. So good. Oh, it's amazing. Let's wrap up this takeaway and this ritual because uh, Alia's out. <laughs> she storms off stage. Yeah, for sure. And the crowd is left kind of feeling awkward and definitely feeling disappointed. Like, this is not how the ritual has gone before. Do we, like, clap for an encore? Like... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like what? We, I mean, what? What's going on? One more song. One. <laughs> no, okay. right. She's gone. Right. I mean. It's like Samantha. Stop. We're not chanting one more song tonight. <laughs> Read the room. <laughs> like, but I really like that. Okay. Not, okay. This right did not feel right. If I am allowed to say that, was that a terrible pun? I. That was, <laughs> I'm going to commit to it. Boo. <laughs> Shut up, Samantha. No more song. <laughs> Read the rim, Samantha. <laughs> At the end of this chapter, Paul muses, as we talked about in our summary, about the visions that Alia has seen. She drank that spice melange and went into a spice trance and saw the horrible futures that he himself has been seeing. It's a powerful moment and a powerful note to end this chapter on. And I think to actually sort of go full circle and actually tie this second takeaway with our first takeaway about Paul's agency, mm -hmm. that first takeaway could also very well have been titled Alia's agency. Right. Because I think both brother and sister are struggling with prescience, this existential question of free will, and their roles as gods. They're both going through similar crises. It's just tragic stuff. Yeah, no kidding. So those are our takeaways from today's reading. <sighs> yeah. This existential question of Paul's agency and the incredible chapter where we get to witness Alia's right. Yeah. So next up, we're going to dive into our spice morsels and wrap up today's episode. But first, we're going to take one more short break. So don't go anywhere, folks. The morsels are baking in the oven. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed your break. We have some toasty, steaming spice morsels ready for your consumption. So let's get into them. Our first spice morsel is high reg hangings. 
which is how I think that's said. <laughs> that sounds right to me. In today's reading, we get this brief passage describing Othame's living space. Quote, It was a barren place by Fremen standards, with high-reg hangings on only two walls. End quote. Now, obviously, in context clues, we're like, oh yeah, these are like draperies or like decorative things. The word jumps out regardless to me. And so, as always, I opened up my like seven ebooks and my <laughs> the encyclopedia and <laughs> Google and the fandom site and everything. And I started poking around, just seeing what's out there, seeing what little details I can latch onto, glom onto. And this is what I found. We get an in-paragraph definition of Hyrig actually back in Dune. Wow. Quote, he knew suddenly that he was in a Hyrig, a desert camp, end quote. So rather than being something specific, Hyrig is a general term, kind of a Fremen word to describe things relating to desert camps or dwellings, which is pretty cool. All right. Our next morsel is a twofer, Othame and the splitting disease. Now, some of you might be going, wait a second, I'm getting a sense of deja vu. Why does Othame sound so familiar? <laughs> That's because we met him a whole book ago in the first book, actually. Yeah. Because he's the guy that witnesses Paul come out of his coma and officially become the Kwisatz Haderach. He has played a minor but pretty cool role in all of the events that have taken place on Arrakis. And we already talked earlier about the sacrifices he's made. Let's go a little bit deeper on Othame. In the Dune Encyclopedia, we learn that Othame was born during an unusually strong sandstorm in Siege Tabur to Lilja and Uliet. Yes. His mother, Lilja, was a teacher, and his father, Uliet, was an experienced fighter. Now, when the OG planetologist Pardo Kynes was brought before Siege Tabur's council, it was actually decided that this outsider should be killed. And Uliet, Othame's father, was given the task of killing Pardo Kynes. That obviously played out differently because Pardo didn't die. It turns out Uliet instead ended up taking his own life rather than complete this task, which the Fremen then took on as this holy sign that solidified Pardo, brought him into the fold under the Fremen, dream of green Arrakis, yada yada. We've talked a lot about that. Right. Othame, from his childhood, was an incredible fighter, and he quickly got into the good graces of Stilgar and became one of his most trusted friends and comrades. Now, of course, after Dune, he continues to work for and with Paul as an active player in the Jihad. He's a soldier. He gets sent out on missions. That's where he gets this terminal illness that he's now dealing with, this splitting disease. And while the book doesn't explain what that is, the encyclopedia points out that the splitting disease was, quote, perhaps what the ancients called leprosy, end quote. Oof. There you That's go. That's not fun. Yeah. That's not fun at all. Finally, to wrap up this morsel and Othame's legacy and all of this, the book doesn't outright tell us how Othame died, but I think it's safe to assume that stone burner explosion is not something you walk away from. The Dune Encyclopedia does have this very beautiful reflection on his life that we wanted to share. Quote, Just as his father Uliet, Pardo Kynes' would-be executioner, gave his life for the creator of the dream of water for Dune, Othame gave his life 
for his Mahdi, the one who made that dream a reality. Uh, Poof. Beautiful. That's a beautiful sentiment. R.I.P.O. theme. What a real one. All right. Our next morsel. Stone burners. Stone burners are not technically nuclear bombs, but they do utilize an atomic igniter, which, of course, is a clear breach of the Great Convention, which is that people will not use atomics against one another. So the use of this is significant, is like wildly significant. The stone burners, because of sci-fi BS, basically, (laughs) emit a very specific radiation that melts eye tissue. Basically, any living thing is going to be blinded by a stone burner. And they can be calibrated. There's different sort of power settings. If they are set incorrectly, they can blow up the whole planet. Here's the quote. Too much fuel in it, and it had cut its way to the planet's core. Dune's molten level lay deep, but the more dangerous for that. Such pressures released and out of control might split a planet, scattering lifeless bits and pieces through space. End quote. That's what happens when you crank that preamp to 11. Yeah. Spinal tap. Really <laughs> a documentary about stone burners. <laughs> we actually heard about stone burners earlier in the book. Recall that Farouk, his son, was blind. We get this quote. The Naraj defenders used a stone burner, Farouk said. My son was too close. Cursed atomics. End quote. So it's super illegal. It can kill an entire planet, blinds everyone in the blast radius. It's just a fucked up weapon. Just all over. All right, let's wrap up this episode. Final morsel. Yes. Is Burke Aldeeb. We heard this phrase in these chapters today with no explanation. So here we are, folks, to save the day. <laughs> Burke Aldeeb is a neighborhood in Arrakis built for veterans of the jihad, veterans like Othame and Farouk. This is that neighborhood that Paul walks to for the meeting. And I kind of imagine it as this large, lush, almost gated community that has plenty of water. Recall while Paul is walking up to Othame, there's almost this quick aside where Paul overhears this husband and wife arguing about water discipline. This is perhaps Paul's way of thanking and recognizing the Fremen who have fought for him, died for him, sacrificed for him, giving them this special place in his city where they and their families can live in relative comfort. Ironically, we know from reading these books that some of these very same Fremen that Paul is stationing at Burkaldib and lavishing with all these gifts and homes and water are the ones that are most against this newfangled, luxurious, water-rich lifestyle and the ones that are conspiring against him hoping to go back to the old days of the siege, to the old ways in the old siege days. Indeed. And with that, the morsels have been served. Hopefully your appetites have been sated and we are ready to assign you your future reading. For next episode, make sure you've read to page 303 in the uh, mass paperback edition, which ends, if you have a different version, on the sentence, quote, I said everything. (laughs) (laughs) Or read not like a maniac, quote, I said everything, end quote. (laughs) Beautiful. 
that kind of feels like someone is calling our ass out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know? God. Yeah. I mm-hmm. said everything is maybe the thesis statement of us saying, we're going to quickly summarize these chapters. We're going to uh-huh. quickly get through some spice morsels. You know, if I can say nothing else at the end of my life, I said everything. <laughs> feels appropriate. It does indeed. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help us spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. Which is a pretty cool combo, I'd say. Oh, yeah. Brain and brawn. Got it. Brain and bronze. Or bronze? Bronze? Brains and brawn. (laughs) Brains and bronze? (laughs) Fucking Hmm. losing it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Brains and bronze. Yeah. That sounds wrong now that I'm saying it. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds weird. Uh, It sounds weird. Got the mind and the muscle. All of it. Exactly. Checking the boxes. Yeah. The full package.